I frame this really as an expectation model. We should be telling our expectations of our employees, and we should be telling what we're doing on their behalf. And then we should be asking, what do you need for me to do well in the circumstances of the job that you have? And all of the other little things that we, we, we assume that they should know. This is one of the things we find very frustrating in my age group, boomers. I, there is not a one boomer that's listening to, who hasn't said this. They should know that. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, your host and a coach here at Quantivos. And my guest today is Chris DeSantis. Chris is the author of Why I Find You Irritating. We'll get to the subtitle in a moment. But Chris, first of all, I want to welcome you and say I don't find you irritating at all. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I gave them 37 titles for this book. That's the one they liked. The subtitle is Navigating Generational Friction at Work. What drew you to this topic, Chris? Well, about, I'd say, 18 to 20 years ago, I, I was running a school for new consultants in a, a suburb of Chicago here for a rather large, uh, now defunct accounting firm that had a consulting wing. I had a, a, a Every month, I was, you would consider me, in quotes, the headmaster of the school. So I, I was responsible for ushering these young people uh, from all around the world uh, through the program. And that was going on for a number of years. And then um, all of a sudden, uh, we started to have these bumps in the road relative to the young's reaction to the program. They were challenging more, like, why are we doing it this way? Why are we? And so there was the, the challenges at first we were thought, well, okay, maybe that's just a cultural issue with some groups. You know, the British seem to be contrary every once in a while. But it seemed to flow much more through the crew, crowd. And so, uh, and because it was recurrent as opposed to incidental, I, I then had seen an article in the Harvard Business Review about generational di diversity. This was the um, really long time ago, um, Howe and Strauss, who had written about this quite a bit. And I thought, well, that seems to be something. And so then I started reading about it. And, it, and again, the more I read about it, the more interesting I thought it was. And then I basically, I just did a deep dive into all the literature. And I say, okay, what, how do you separate the wheat from the chafe, as it were, relative to this topic? Because the, there's a lot of things about the topic that I think are, are, are mistaken in terms of it's a perceptual difference, but not an actual difference. And we tend to be anecdotal in our sort of... Uh, research. And what, is, what is that called? Uh, availability heuristics, meaning wh whatever I have available is how I judge. And so in that sense, there's these judgments that were going on out there that I didn't think necessarily were reflective of actually these differences, but rather my opinion of you not being me. And so I, I try to just write about what I think about, okay, what might these actual differences be? What drives those differences? And then in turn, what do we need to do about it? Which is why we are here today. <laughs> One of the critical points I think that you make in this book is these differences are real. 
Yes. And one of the mistakes we make is that we fit everybody into the generation in which they were born. Yes. I learned somewhere along the way in my career, but not until after many years, that I'm a millennial born in a boomer body. <laughs> and there are yeah. others like me. Yes. Of, 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 I mean, there are traditionalists born in Gen Z bodies. Exactly. Uh, why is it so important for leaders to pay attention to these differences? Well, a, a couple of things. One is uh, what we often do when we view the young is we just view them from the perspective of they're, they're a younger version of me, meaning that, look, I was young. When I was young, I sowed my wild oats, as it were, as it were. And so I just see you through that lens uh, in this circumstance. The reality is when I was young, when you were young, we had different ex experiences relative to what was going on around us in, in the world and the culture and so forth. And so as a consequence of that, those influenced who we were. But to your, also, your other point about you could be a millennial sort of tra uh, trapped in a boomer's body, it's the narrative of our lives that really shape us, not just the circumstances of our lives. So what is the storyline of who you are and how did you interact growing up uh, with the world and how was your, how, what were your parents' experience with you? That's why, to your point, if you're a first-generation U.S. or... or if you're an only child, or if your parents were a lot older or younger, there are so many other influences relative to who you could become. You cannot just say a millennial is a millennial. But the caveat to the caveat is that, look, that you have a, a normative group, meaning that there are, there are a, a great many of young, a cohort group, we'll call that, that have similar experiences, that thus shaping what they feel about society and what we expect of them as a consequence because we, we interact with that group with some regularity, if that makes sense. Absolutely. One of the things that I've certainly noticed in the last few years, last three plus years at this point, mm -hmm. is that COVID really was a catalyst that served to in some ways shift whole generations. Yes, yes. If you will. What are some of your observations around what some of those shifts have been? Well, what's interesting about it relative to, let's say, the millennials, I have always felt the, 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 the young have, have, have a, are predisposed to be time and place agnostic. And what that means is very simply, they think it's, artifi it's an artificial construct to say, you've got to be in the office at 8 o'clock and stay here till 5 because that's what I expect of you. They're saying, well, nothing happens at 8. Why do I have to be here at 8? And by the way, I don't get revved up till about 2 in the afternoon. So my point would be their, their, their rhythm is not my rhythm, not my cadence. And so and they, live, they were raised more in a 24-hour world than I was raised in, and so their expectations vary according to mine. I think the uh, COVID uh, um, vindicated them, saying, look, we, we can work outside of the premise that you have defined it as. Now, if we go backwards in a generation Gen X, they, they're so interesting. They have always felt that you could just figure it out. And I think of all the generations, they're the ones that really were designed for the epidemic in the sense that, look, 
we have to leave the office. Well, Gen X said, okay, well, why don't we just work at home? And see, they'll ju they're just going to figure it out. I think the people that were most upset were probably the boomers because our habits were deeper and we tie our identity more to the, uh, the office and the workplace. Although I will say this, we, we're getting better at the habit of not being there. You see what I'm saying? We're getting better at it. But we miss the camaraderie of all that because I think one of the, I hate to go on to this, but one of the challenges as being a boomer is, look, I want you back at the office. And we think we hear that or the young often hear that is I'm doing this to you. But what they're actually saying is I'm doing this for you because that's how I built relationships. That's how I built a network. That's how I learned. I just want to impart on you how I did things, not to not to dump on you, but rather to sort of work with you through the lens of how I'm best able to work. Chris, you and I have talked before, and one of the things that will always stick in my mind is a piece of that conversation. When I shared with you that so many of the senior executives I hear <laughs> say, we need people back in the office because that's how we bring them into our culture. Yes. That's how we build and sustain our culture. Yes. And you said something to me in response to that that I, I think is a remarkable insight, which is just ask those young ones how to do this without coming back into the office. They have built and will sustain for their lifetime relationships around the world with people they have not met and they may never meet. Uh, there, are, there, there are so many important messages to me in that around the importance of listening. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of listening for leaders as they face multiple generations of people? Well, I, I, to your point, everyone brings something to the table. And in particular, the young are raised in what I will call a dialogue model. So when they are at the table, they have an expectation to participate. I think it's the responsibility of leaders to not to tell them so much, but rather to ask better questions. Because if you ask better questions, you then get both parties engaged in some kind of Socratic dialogue in a way that sort of creates insights among us. Because again, the young who sit across from you or sit and work in your company are the inheritors of your company. But the company will never be as the company was, but rather the company can perpetuate what the company believes in if, in fact, we can have a dialogue around this is what, why I believe what I believe. This is why we do these things relative to the culture. How do we then, of course, to your, my point earlier or to the, the insight that you made reference to is how then do we manifest that that is relevant to today as opposed to being, I, I will say, anchored in our tradition which may not, which might not be appropriate to the circumstance we live in. In your book, you identify a series of generations. Yes. And I'd like to ask you, I'm going to go down the list. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you, what is it most of value today that this generation 
can offer the future of work. The, are we talking about the newest generation in the workplace? I'm talking about starting with the traditionalists. Ah, what can they bring? Well, you know, quite frankly, I think to traditionalists, I'm of oh, this again. I'm, what I'm going to be talking about right now is my opinion. I, I am not anchoring this in any kind of data review, but I think the traditionalists bring a level of civility and 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 sort of respect to the workplace that I think we sometimes lack. You see. I think we are not deferential in the way we once were to somebody who might have wisdom. So I think this um, this 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 notion of what they did uh, in terms of that, now that is the best aspect of who they are, or that is an important aspect. I think we boomers uh, bring camaraderie to the workplace. I think we've always felt that there was some level of camaraderie and and networking necessarily and working well with others. I also think we we have the best work ethic, quite frankly, and that's what that is actually data driven, in the sense that everyone thinks so. But they also think the rest of the world thinks it costs too much to be a boomer. It just costs too much because we were willing to sacrifice for the job in a way that today's uh, people are saying, I want to work hard, but I won't do it in lieu of get, sacrificing my, my attention and my love for my family. You see what I'm saying? We brought family into the fold. And how about Generation X? Generation X, I think what they, they are bringing to the, well, I think that what they bring to the is self-sufficiency. In fact, one of the things about interesting about them in terms of how they are seen is they are seen as probably the best managers. Um, and this, again, from another data point, uh, because they don't tend to micromanage. They said, look, we expect you to be competent. So their driver is competency, meaning I need competency, not intimacy with you. Intimacy only follows as a consequence of your display of competency. And so over time, I get to know you. So I think they respect boundaries, which I think is very interesting. Like they, I'm not going to get into your family. I just need you to do it this way, and then you should figure it out. The, bro the bad news about that particular generation is if you don't figure out, they don't necessarily spend time telling you how to figure out. They just assume you're not interested in figuring it out, and then they move on. <laughs> no. So which I think is a, 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 a little bit of a troubling. But the, the millennial, as it stands, what they bring, now there's been a shift here, what they bring is much more of a collaborative nature in terms of they were raised in a collaborative model in the workplace, in the home front. And so this collaborative thing recognizes that work is complex. You see, I think there's going to be a sea change as a, as a consequence of them, not because of Gen X, but them. They see the necessity of a team in the sense that, look, I'm particularly good at something. I'm not good at everything. So I know that I will have a contribution to make that is significant. It doesn't mean I'm making all the contributions that are significant, rather that I'm making my, I'm, I'm participating on this team to the fullest of my ability in a particular area of need. They recognize that each of us can come to the table with a particular area of expertise. You see, the old model of the boomer model that got in the way was, I come to the table as the A player. And as an A player, everyone else at the table is my competition. And that is not the model of the future, because what that does, it pits us against each other. But our reward systems were designed for pitting us against each other because we pay for the individual performance, not for the team's output. That's where millennials will come into play. They will demand more uh, of a team sort of uh, sensibility because teams perform, individuals contribute to it. So I think that's going to be changed of the way they operate. Gen Z is a, is a little speculative right now. They are far more pragmatic, but they are far more entrepreneurial. They're going to have be a, they're going to change the way we work in the sense, in my view, uh, one area will be they're going to work for themselves and work for you. 
they're going to have they're going to have a the side hustle is going to be more um, pronounced uh, as they get older because if they have little faith in organizations, little faith in safety nets, and and they are, if they are highly transactional in their mindset, they're going to say, "What can I do for myself as a revenue stream in addition to leveraging you?" And so, what's going to be interesting about that is how will that reshape how organizations operate? Because initially, organizations will resist that. They'll say, "You can't have a side hustle." And then I think the young will simply lie and say, "Okay, I don't," but they do. Uh, and so I think what we've got to do is say in the, in, the, in the interview process is, quite frankly, just assume they do. It's the default. And start asking, okay, what is your side hustle? Because that will give you, that will give you competency traits. They will surface competency traits because they're going to surface what they like doing. And what they like doing is really reflective of some of their competencies. If I can understand that and leverage it, I might end up being an incubator of their, of their side hustle if I'm, the, if I'm the, the firm that's hiring them. Or I might tell them we cannot do that because our firm doesn't align with that as our part of our brand. My point would be we're going to have to have some more truth in advertising from both parties. <laughs> I find that very interesting because particularly during COVID, Mm -hmm. I had more than one client who said, I'm working from home now. Mm -hmm. I am delivering everything that was expected of me in 12, 18, 24 hours. I want to go out and start my own thing. Yes, yes. And as a coach, it was not my role to say, no, you shouldn't do that, or yes, you should right. do that. Right. Um, but to really help them navigate in their own minds what it would mean to do that. But as you talk about bringing that up in the selection process, one of the questions that I'm really inviting my clients to think about in that mm -hmm. hiring process is being very candid about what is it that feeds your soul? What is it that gets yes. you up and excited to go to work in the morning? Because if that aligns with what I need from you, yes. whoa, I don't have to worry about retention. I don't have to worry about you showing up. I don't have to worry about uh, you know, what we refer to as engagement or quality of work. Um, if if the opportunity I'm offering you serves us both, then we've got a winning combination. And as a sidebar, this is Brian Gorman speaking, not not Quantibos. <laughs> um, if you can fulfill everything that I need and expect of you, and have a side hustle that helps to continue to, to feed you and in, in many ways and to help you grow and, and to become a better version of yourself, why would I want to stop that? Well, you're, you're, you're hitting on exactly what I believe is. See, I, I, this whole, I, I, when I speak to this, I talk about the, uh, the uh, work-life balance myth. There is no work-life balance. There never will be work-life balance. It's a myth. It's basically based, I think it's predicated on a symptom of I, I'm trying to get away from that which I don't want to spend a lot of time doing. Work is too much. I'm taking my time. To your point, if we could say what engages you, and engagement is an interesting concept. It is not 100% of the job necessarily. It's 
it's little as 20% of the job to say, I'm getting to do the thing I'm really good at doing. I get into flow. I get lost in what I do for some period of the day. We can do that. One of the challenges, though, is one of a trust, and the second is measurement. We don't measure performance well, and we don't trust our people. We, our default is, if you're not here, you must be wasting some time somewhere. And so and I think that's the old buns on seat thing. And, and, and if we don't trust, we're going to have a problem. But to trust, you have to have evidence. So I think, and going back full circle, back to this uh, hybrid workplace concept, this idea that, you know, uh, the, the vindication of working on your own, I think you first have to prove that you are trustworthy and that you have mastery of the skills we need you to do and that you understand the speed at which we need the deliverable from you and the, all of those things. Once that's established, I, I release you from that so that you can do other things. So I, I guess mastery and trust all, and, and measurability sort of all sort of fold into each other. You get that, you get happy campers. <laughs> when I would talk with some of my clients, and I'm actually the co-holder of the trademark four-day work week here in the U.S. Uh-oh. And the, the Tony Carnese and I, when we use that term, it is not about a literal four days. Right. It is about the flexibility that allows us to focus on, are we serving our clients? Are yes. we serving the people of the organization? Are we serving the purpose of the organization in a way that can be very flexible? It can be yes. 40 hours over four week, four days, five days, six days. It can be 32 hours over four days. It can be 32 hours over five days, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when I would talk with business owners and, and uh, entrepreneurs about this, they would often raise the question, much like uh, you are, um, but how will I know that people are being productive? And to me, the and, and we also heard that question a lot during COVID. The answer is very simple. How have you known they're being productive before? Right. If yeah. it's butts in seats, that's not what right. you're watching. That's not what you're right. measuring. That's busyness. It's not always even busyness. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it's they're, they're, they're looking for the, the, the illusion of activity. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I want to actually come back to that point that you raised about trust. Yes. Because again, as we heard, it's time to come back to the office. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, I heard, wait a minute. You trusted me for a year, 18 uh -huh. months, 24 months to do my job without ever setting eyes on me physically. Um, and I'm here. Mm -hmm. you know, and I got the raises. I earned the bonuses, whatever. I proved that I am delivering what you're asking for. Why don't you trust me now to yes. continue doing that? Um. And so trust really is at the heart for me of successful leadership. The real question for me, and I have worked for leaders on both sides of this equation. Uh, I've worked for leaders who begin with the assumption of trust. 
And I've worked for leaders who say, it's going to take a year or two before you prove to me that I can trust you, that you have anything to offer beyond the wisdom I bring. How does trust play out across generations? Well, uh, before I get to the generational piece, one of the problems when we use trust, we conflate it with mastery. And I think if you separate those things, I think we'd be better at it. You see, if I say to you, uh, I have to keep a close eye on you because you, haven't, you don't have mastery of this yet. See, you're developing a skill. And as developing a skill, you'll learn it quicker under the auspices of somebody who, has, who knows it. And so I need you around with greater frequency to do that. But if you, if, you, if you take out the word mastery and you put in trust, now we have a problem between us because you're, you're attacking my character. You see, yeah. we are, when, when you attack character, you get defensiveness. When you attack skill, uh, and, and I don't say attack of a skill, you get the reality of either you possess it or you're not because you're on a learning curve. So one, is, one creates a defensive posture because, again, you, are, you have given an assault of character where one, the other is a, a belief that I can help you, but I need to see you to do so. You see what I'm saying? These are very different things, but we overlap them. So, so I would say if my advice to dealing with the young is don't talk about trust with them. Talk about what they want most, and that is mass skill mastery, then eventually familiarity leads us naturally into trust. I hope. Well, I went off. No, no. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I, th I think that's an important distinction. Yes. Because that's what I hear. You know, I'm not, if, I'm the, if I'm that other person, like, you, you need to come in the office. And th what I hear from that is, oh, because you don't trust me. It's, even, it's not, nothing needs to be stated. It's inferred. And so, but if, uh, when I say, because here's the other problem I face is we, we view the employee as an aggregate. And the employee is not an aggregate. They are a group. Their individuals have particular needs at different times of their lives. Some of the, young, the, the newest neophytes, uh, by the way, you can have 30 years experience, but if you've never worked for my firm, I need you around here a lot more with greater frequency because you don't know who's anyone here and they need to know who you are. So in that sense, it's a matter of what are the requirements for presence? That's what the conversation should be about. What are, so why I'm, do I require you in, instead of, Again, globalizing, you need to come back to the office. You see what I'm saying? One is, one is, uh, one is really about I'm, I'm in charge here and you're just a kid. You do what your daddy tells you to do versus the other is this is a particular need. We're adults with each other. This is why I believe this particular need uh, overcomes your desire to sit at home. <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up the, the parent yes. in all of us right. because that opens up the door to what I was about to bring up. In our last conversation, you said something that, again, I often quote you with <laughs> for my clients. You said, as parents, we raise our children to fit into the generation in which they're growing up. And when they get into the workplace, we expect them to work according to the ethic of our generation. Yes. Yes, that's right. Can you it's, say more about how we overcome that? Well, I think it's just simply a recognition of, of 
Well, actually, I think you are already doing it. The whole, if I understood our previous conversation prior to coming online here, the very essence of what your firm is about is creating a coaching culture. And what that, it, by in inference, is it's a dialogue model. You don't tell a person what to do. You sort of observe what they're doing, and then you ask them, how is this working? What isn't working? What, how can we make it work better? What you're doing is, I would imagine your, your coaching model is highly Socratic. So my point would be, unless there's an emergency, I think be more Socratic, be more, give people context for the work they're doing, why it fits in. This is why I'm telling you to do it this way. If you have any other thoughts relative to that, please feel free if you, in fact, have a view that is informed. I think people confuse opinion with an informed view, and this is what's very frustrating to my generation. When you are a child of a dialogue model, you think everything is a dialogue. Well, sometimes you don't know as much as me, and so sometimes it's simply instruction. And so I think we have to be very clear when we're giving instruction or uh, versus when we're open for the idea of saying, I need your thoughts as well. This is, uh, I, I frame this really as an expectation model. We should be telling our expectations of our employees. And we should be telling what we're doing on their behalf. And then we should be asking, what do you need for me to do well in the circumstances of the job that you have? And all of the other little things that we, we, we assume that they should know. This is one of the things we find very frustrating in my age group, boomers. I, there is not a one boomer that's listening to, who hasn't said this. They should know that. They should know that. You see what I'm saying? That's that osmatic thing. We should be osmatic. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're talking my language as you talk about the role of a leader, which is I need to do everything I can possibly do to set you up for success. Yes. I need to know from you how you need me to lead you, how you need me to set you up for success, and what you need from me to clear the road ahead so that you can be successful. Yes. Yes, you're... you're uh, you're, you're almost, uh, it, it, this is almost the green leaf, sort of the servant leader model uh, uh, approach yeah. to life, which I, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of. The other thing that, I, and I want your listeners to be aware of this, it's, it's a fallacy on your part to imagine you're a leader unless you know, you know that they are choosing to follow you. If you do not know they are choosing to follow you, then you are simply a manager who is deluding themselves as to being a leader. Leader does not come with title. It comes with followers. Exactly. And so this is one of the mistakes people make about this, that there's a distinction. By the way, you need to be a competent manager first before you can be a leader because nobody wants to follow an incompetent manager. <laughs> Chris, we're going to need to wrap this up soon. Sure. So I want to go to actually the conclusion of your book. Yes. And you conclude with a quote from Carl Rogers. The only reality I can possibly know is the world as I perceive it at the moment. The only reality you can possibly know is the world as you see it as at this moment. And the only certainty is that those perceived realities are different. There are as many real worlds as there are people. How in the world <laughs> does a leader lead? In well, a the world of many perceived worlds. Well, you, I, I think I, I always say, look, the only thing that's true is what's true about you, as, as this quote in, indicates. And what you should be is, is share your truth. You should tell people how you manage. This is how I go about what I do. 
But I also, you should tell people, my gift to you is to make you better at whatever it is you're choosing to do on our behalf. That is my, that's my expression of gratitude. Now, what I need to understand from you is what do you need from me to be successful here? So I think this is, going back to the whole point of this is, it's a dialogue from the beginning. You see, one of the things that the young want is they want somebody who believes in them. Well, I think you should state it. State it. I, you know, my job is to make you great at what you do, and but these are the requirements of how I go about it. What do you need to do to do that? So in that sense, you're because I think one, one of the things we get confused about is style differences. So you're, you might be very uh, uh, concise with me. You might not say a lot of things. You might be more task-focused with me. You might be, you know, right to the point. Yeah, you know, you might have a quick temper. I don't, all those things are your stylistic choices of how you engage. If I know that, I don't judge you from the lens of, oh, you don't like me because you are engaging me in a way that I, that is not my style. And so I say, share your styles, but be aware that there's consequences to every choice of a style. So in that sense, I think again, know who you are and then be avail, avail yourself as try to understand who is across from me and what might they need. Because I'll tell you, we have a lot more in common than not. They are there because they want to be successful, but their idea of success may not exactly align with your definition. So what is their definition? Chris, any last thoughts for our listeners on why I find you irritating navigating intergenerational conflict? Well, it's a very interesting thing. Um, I, I will say one thing that's really askew of all of this. I am not convinced that uh, the young should be leaving high schools. I know this is an, uh, rather a, a sideways thought, but leaving high school and going right to college. I have, I'm of the belief this new Gen Z might need to think about, well, actually any young, is before I commit to my who I will become uh, after spending $250,000 over a four-year period of time, I might want to explore a little of my entrepreneurial self in a profound way. And that way I will have a better sense of who I am over a period of two or three years. And then I go to college because now I've explored. You see, what, one of the challenges I think faced with this side hustle is quite frankly, is you're, 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 you are uh, bifurcating your head. You know what I'm saying? I've got to do this on one side of my life and I got to do that on the other. You're, comp you're, you're going to try to compartmentalize, but there's going to still be a distraction here. Why don't we give you the opportunity to immerse yourself in your side hustle for a year to three years, whatever you need, and then say, what have I learned? And then go to college. Because I think, again, the young are going to live a lot longer than me. If you're going to have a career that spans 70 years, I mean, careers that span 60 to 70 years, why not explore the front end more and find out what you're particularly good at so you don't waste some of that money and time that you are wasting uh, to discover Oh, gosh, I, I was an English major. That was a mistake. Gosh, I, I was a science major. That was a mistake. You see what I'm saying? So I think exploration is part of our, the future for the young. Anyway, I, that was my closing thought. <laughs> Chris DeSantis, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to just talk.